Chapter Two, Book Five of Rookwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Paul Curran. Rookwood by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book Five, Chapter Two. Major Mowbray. Mephistopheles. Out with your toasting iron. Thrust away. Hayward's translation of Faust. Conky Jem went in search of such provisions as his hovel afforded. Turpin, meantime, lent his assistance towards the revival of Alan Rookwood, and it was not long before his efforts, united with those of Luke, were successful, and Alan restored to consciousness. He was greatly surprised to find the highwayman had joined them, and expressed an earnest desire to quit the hut as speedily as possible. "'That shall be done forthwith, my dear fellow,' said Dick. "'But if you had fasted as long as I had done, and gone through a few of my fatigues into the bargain, you would perceive, without difficulty, the propriety of supping before you started. Here comes old Nosey with a flitch of bacon and a loaf. Egad, I can scarce wait for the toasting. In my present mood I could almost devour a grunter in the sty.' whereupon he applied himself to the loaf, and to a bottle of stout March ale, which Jem placed upon the table, quaffing copious draughts of the latter, while the ferryman employed himself in toasting certain rashers of the flitch upon the hissing embers. Luke, meanwhile, stalked impatiently about the room. He had laid aside his tridental spear, having first, however, placed a pistol within his breast to be ready for instant service should occasion demand it, as he could now put little reliance upon the ferryman's fidelity. He glanced with impatience at Turpin, who pursued his meal with steady veracity, worthy of a half-famished soldier. But the highwayman returned no answer to his looks, except such as was conveyed by the incessant clatter of his masticating jaws, during the progress of his, apparently, interminable repast. "'Ready for you in a second, Sir Luke,' said Dick. "'All right now. Capital ale, Sharon. Strong as sticks. One other rasher, and I've done. Sorry to keep you. Can't conceive how cleverly I put the winkers upon him at York, in the dress of a countryman, all owing to old Balty the Patrico. An old pal, nah. My old pals never nose upon me, eh, nosy? Always help one out of the water, always staunch. Here's health to you, old crony. Jem returned a sulky response as he placed the last rasher on the table, which was speedily discussed. "'Poor Bess,' muttered Dick, as he quaffed off the final glass of ale. "'Poor lass! We buried her by the roadside beneath the trees. Deep, deep! Her remains shall never be disturbed. Alas! Alas, my bonny black Bess! But no matter, her name is yet alive. Her deeds will survive her. The trial is over. And now?' continued he, rising from his seat. I'm with you. Where are the tits? In the stable, underground, growled Jem. Alan Rookwood, in the meantime, had joined his grandson, and they conversed an instant or two apart. My strength will not bear me through the night, said he. That fellow has thoroughly disabled me. You must go without me to the hall. Here is the key of the secret passage. You know the entrance. I will await you in the tomb. The tomb? echoed Luke. Aye, our family vault. 
returned Alan with a ghastly grin. "'It is the only place of security for me now. "'Let me see her there. "'Let me know that my vengeance is complete, "'that I triumph in my death over him, "'the accursed brother, through you, my grandson. "'You have a rival brother, a successful one. "'You now know what hatred is.' "'I do,' returned Luke fiercely. "'But not such hate as mine, which, through a life, a long life, hath endured, "'intense as when t'was first engendered in my bosom, "'which, from one, hath spread o'er all my race, or all save you, "'and which even now, when death stares me in the face, "'when the spirit pants to fly from its prison-house, "'burns fiercely as ever. "'You cannot know what hate like that may be. "'You must have wrongs.' such wrongs as mine first my hate to ranulph is bitter as your own to sir reginald name him not shrieked alan but oh to think upon the bride he robbed me of the young the beautiful whom i love to madness whose memory is a barbed shaft yet rankling keen as ever at my heart god of justice how is it that i have thus long survived but some men die by inches my dying lips shall name him once again, and then twill be but to blend his name with curses. I speak of him no more, said Luke. I will meet you in the vault. Remember, tomorrow is her wedding day with Ranulph. Think you I forget it? Bear it constantly in mind. Tomorrow's dawn must see her yours or his. You have her oath. To you or to death she is affianced. If she would hesitate in her election, do not you hesitate. Woman's will is fickle. Her scruples of conscience will be readily overcome. She will not heed her vows, but let her not escape you. Cast off all your weakness. You are young, and not as I am, age enfeebled. Be firm, and, added he, with a look of terrible meaning, if all else should fail, if you are surrounded, if you cannot bear her off, use this and he placed a dagger in luke's hands it has avenged me ere now on a perjured wife it will avenge you of a forsworn mistress and remove all obstacle to rookwood luke took the weapon would you have me kill her demanded he sooner than she should be ranulph's ay ought sooner than that but I would not murder both. Both? echoed Alan. I understand you not. Sybil and Eleanor, replied Luke, for, as surely as I live, Sybil's death will lie at my door. How so? asked Alan. The poison was self-ministered. True, replied Luke, with terrible emphasis. But I spoke daggers. Hearken to me, said he, hollowly whispering in his grandsire's ears, Methinks I am not long for this world. I have seen her since her death. Tut, tut, replied Alan. Tis not for you, a man, to talk thus. A truce to these womanish fancies. Womanish or not, returned Luke. Either my fancy has deceived me, or I beheld her distinctly as I now behold you within yon cave while you were sleeping at my side. "'It is disordered fancy,' said Alan Rookwood. "'You will live, live to inherit Rookwood, "'live to see them fall crushed beneath your feet. "'For myself, if I but see you master of Eleanor's hand, 
or know that she no longer lives to bless your rival or to mar your prospects i care not how soon i brave my threatened doom of one or other you shall see resolved to-night said luke placing the dagger within his vest at this moment a trampling of a horse was heard before the hovel and in another instant a loud knocking resounded from the door the ferryman instantly extinguished the light motioning his companions to remain silent what ho shouted a voice ferry wanted gadzooks exclaimed dick as i live tis major mowbray major mowbray echoed alan in amazement what doth he here he must be on his way from york to rookwood i conclude said dick if he's here i'll engage the others are not far off scarcely were the words out of dick's mouth when further clatter was heard at the door and the tones of coats were heard in altissimo key demanding admittance let us retire into the next room whispered turpin and then admit them by all means conkey and harkey managed to detain them a few seconds i'll do it said jem there's a bit of a hole you can peep through another loud rat-tat was heard at the door threatening to burst it from its hinges well i'll be coming said jem seeing the coast was clear in a drowsy yawning tone as if just awakened from sleep you'll cross the river none the faster for making so much noise with these words he unbarred the door and coates and patterson who it appeared were proceeding to rookwood entered the hovel major mowbray remained on horseback at the door can you find a glass of brandy to keep out the fog said coates who knew something of our ferryman's vocations i know you are a lad of amazing spirit maybe i can master if i choose but won't the other german walk indoors likewise no no said coates major mowbray don't choose to dismount well as you please said jem it'll take me a minute or two to get the punt in order for all them prads the brandy in the first place said coates what's here added the loquacious attorney noticing the remnants of turpin's repast but that we're hurried i should like a little frizzled bacon myself jem opened the door of his dormitory with the greatest caution though apparent indifference and almost instantly returned with the brandy coates filled a glass for patterson and then another for himself. The ferryman left the house apparently to prepare his boat, half closing the door after him. "'By my faith, this is the right thing, Patterson,' said the attorney. "'We may be sure the strength of this was never tasted by a gauge's proof. Take another thimbleful. We've twelve miles, and a heavy pull to go through ere we reach Rookwood. After all, we made but a poor night's work of it, Master Constable. Curse stupid in us to let him escape.' i only wish we had such another chance ah if we had him with him reach now how he would spring upon him secure him in an instant i should glory in the encounter i tell you what patterson if ever he is taken i shall make a point of attending his execution and see whether he dies game ha you think he's sure to swing patterson eh why yes replied the chief constable i wish i was as certain of my reward as that turpin will eventually figure at the scragging post your reward replied coates make yourself easy on that score my boy you shall have your dues depend upon it nay for the matter of that i'll give you the money now if you think proper 
"'Nothing like time present,' said Patterson. "'We'll make all square at once.' "'Well, then,' said Coates, taking out a pocket-book, "'you shall have the hundred I promised. "'You won't get Turpin's reward, the three hundred pounds, "'but that can't be helped. "'You shall have mine. "'Always a man of my word, Patterson,' continued the attorney, "'counting out the money. "'My father, the thief-taker, was a man of his word before me.' "'No doubt.' said the chief constable. I shall always be happy to serve you. And then there's that other affair, said the attorney, mysteriously, still occupied in doling out his banknotes. That's Luke Bradley's case, the fellow, I mean, who calls himself Sir Luke Rookwood. Ha-ha! <laughs> a rank impostor. Two fives, that makes fifty. You want another fifty, Patterson. As I was saying, we may make a good job of that. We must ferret him out. I know he will come down properly for that. "'and if we could only tuck him up with his brother-blade, "'why, it would be worth double. "'He's all along been a thorn in my Lady Rookwood's side. "'He's an artful scoundrel.' "'Leave him to me,' said Patterson. "'I'll have him in less than a week. "'What's your charge against him? "'Felony? Burglary? Murder? "'Every description of crime under the heavens,' said Coates. "'He's a very devil incarnate. "'Dick Turpin is as mild as milk compared with him. "'By the by,' Now I think of it, this gem, conky gem, as folks call him, may know something about him. He's a keen file. I'll sound him. Thirty, forty, fifty. There's the exact amount. So much for Dick Turpin. Dick Turpin thanks you for it in person, said Dick, suddenly snatching the whole sum from Patterson's hands and felling the chief constable with a blow of one of his pistols. I wish I was as sure of escaping the gallows as I am certain that Patterson has got his reward. "'You stare, sir. You are once more in the hands of the Philistines. See who is at your elbow.' Coates, who was terrified almost out of his senses by the sight of Turpin, scarcely ventured to turn his head. But when he did so, he was perfectly horror-stricken at the threatening aspect of Luke, who held a cutlass in his hand, which he had picked up in the ferryman's bedroom. "'So you would condemn me for crimes I have never committed,' said Luke. "'I am tempted, I own.' to add the destruction of your worthless existence to their number. "'Mercy! For God's sake, mercy!' cried Coates, throwing himself at Luke's feet. "'I meant not what I said!' "'Hence, reptile!' said Luke, pushing him aside. "'I leave you to be dealt upon by others!' At this juncture the door of the hut was flung open, and in rushed Major Mowbray, sword in hand, followed by Conky Jem. "'They stand, sir!' cried the latter. Upon him! What? Conky Jem turned snitch upon his pals? cried Dick. I scarce believe my own ears. Make yourself scarce, Dick, growled Jem. The jig is open, and the boat loose. Leave Luke to his fate. He's sold. Never, vile traitor, shouted Dick. Tis thou art sold, not he. And, almost ere the words were spoken, a ball was lodged in the brain of the treacherous ferryman. Major Mowbray, meanwhile, had rushed furiously upon Luke, who met his assault with determined calmness. The strife was sharp, and threatened a speedy and fatal issue. On the Major's side it was a desperate attack of cut and thrust, which Luke had some difficulty in parrying, but as yet no wounds were inflicted. Soldier as was the Major, Luke was not a whit inferior to him in his knowledge of the science of defence, and in the exercise of the broadsword he was perhaps the more skilful of the two. Upon the present occasion his coolness stood him in admirable stead. 
Seeing him hard-pressed, Turpin would have come to his assistance, but Luke shouted to him to stand aside, and all that Dick could do amid the terrific clash of steel was to kick the tables out of the way of the combatants. Luke's aim was now slightly grazed by a cut made by the major which he had parried. The smart of the wound roused his ire. He attacked his adversary in his turn, with so much vigour and good will that, driven backwards by the irresistible assault, Major Mowbray stumbled over the ferryman's body, which happened to lie in his way, and his sword being struck from his grasp, his life became at once at his assailant's disposal. Luke sheathed his sword. "'Major Mowbray,' said he sternly, "'your life is in my power. I spare it for the blood that is between us, for your sister's sake.' I would not raise my hand against her brother. "'I disclaim your kindred with me, villain!' wrathfully exclaimed the major. "'I hold you no otherwise than as a wretched impostor who has set up claims he cannot justify, and as to my sister, if you dare to couple her name!' And the major made an ineffectual attempt to raise himself, and to regain his sword, which Turpin, however, removed. "'Dare!' echoed Luke scornfully. Hereafter you may learn to fear my threats, and acknowledge the extent of my daring, and in that confidence I give you life. Listen to me, sir. I am bound for Rookwood. I have private access to the house, to your sister's chamber. Her chamber. Mark you that. I shall go armed, attended. This night she shall be mine. From you, from Ranulph, from Lady Rookwood. From all will I bear her off. She shall be mine, and you before the dawn, my brother, or— and Luke paused. "'What further villainy remains untold?' inquired the Major fiercely. "'You shall bewail your sister's memory,' replied Luke gloomily. "'I embrace the latter alternative with rapture,' replied the Major. "'God grant her firmness to resist you, but I tremble for her.' And the stern soldier groaned aloud in his agony. "'Here's a card to bind him.' said Turpin. He must remain a prisoner here. Right, said Alan Rookwood, unless... But enough blood has been shed already. Aye. Marry has there, said Dick, and I'd rather not have given Conky Jem a taste of blue plum. Had there been any other mode of silencing the snitching scoundrel, which there was not, as to the Major, he's a gallant enemy, and shall have fair play as long as Dick Turpin stands by. Come, sir, added he to the major, as he bound him hand and foot with the rope. I'll do it gently as I can. You had better submit with good grace. There's no help for it. And now for my friend Patterson, who was so anxious to furnish me with a hempen cravat before my neck was in order, he shall have an extra twist of the rope himself to teach him the inconvenience of a tight neckcloth when he recovers. Saying which, he bound Patterson in such a manner that any attempt at liberation on the chief constable's part would infallibly strangle him. "'As to you, Mr. Coates,' said he, addressing the trembling man-of-law, "'you shall proceed to Rookwood with us. You may yet be useful, and I'll accommodate you with a seat behind my own saddle, a distinction I never yet conferred upon any of your tribe. Recollect the countryman at the Bowling Green at York. <laughs> Come along, sir.' and having kicked out the turf fire, Dick prepared to depart. It would be vain to describe the feelings of rage and despair which agitated the Major's bosom, as he saw the party quit the hovel accompanied by Coates. Aware as he was of their destination, after one or two desperate but ineffectual attempts to liberate himself, 
by which he only increased the painful constriction of his bonds, without in the slightest degree ameliorating his condition, he resigned himself, with bitterest forebodings, to his fate. There was no one even to sympathise with his sufferings. Beside him lay the gory corpse of the ferryman, and, at a little distance, the scarcely more animate frame of the chief constable. And here we must leave him, to follow, for a short space, the course of Luke and his companions. Concerning themselves little about their own steeds, the party took those which first offered, and embarking man and horse in the boat, soon pushed across the waters of the luchulent Don. Arrived at the opposite banks of the river, they mounted, and guided by Luke, after half an hour's sharp riding, arrived at the skirts of Rookwood Park. Entering this beautiful sylvan domain, they rode for some time silently among the trees, till they reached the knoll whence Luke had beheld the hall on the eventful night of the discovery of his mother's wedding ring. A few days only had elapsed, but during that brief space what storms had swept over his bosom! What ravages had they not made! He was then all ardour, all impetuosity, all independence. The future presented a bright, unclouded prospect. Wealth, honours, and happiness apparently awaited him. It was still the same exquisite scene, hushed, holy, tranquil, even solemn as upon that glorious night. The moon was out, silvering wood and water, and shining on the white walls of the tranquil mansion. Nature was calm, serene, peaceful as ever. Beneath the trees he saw the bounding deer, upon the water, the misty wreaths of vapour, all, all was dreamy, delightful, soothing, all save his heart. There was the conflict, there the change. Was it a troubled dream, with the dark oppression of which he was struggling, or was it stern, waking, actual life? That moment's review of his wild career was terrible. He saw to what extremes his ungovernable passions had hurried him. He saw their inevitable consequences. He also saw his own fate. But he rushed madly on. He swept round the park, keeping under the covert of the wood, till he arrived at the avenue leading to the mansion. The stems of the aged limes gleamed silvery white in the moonshine. Luke drew in the rain beneath one of the largest of the trees. "'A branch has fallen,' said he, as his grandsire joined him. "'Ha!' exclaimed Alan. "'A branch from that tree!' "'It bodes ill to Ranulph,' whispered Luke. "'Does it not?' "'Perchance,' muttered Alan. "'Tis a vast bow.' "'We meet within an hour,' said Luke abruptly. "'Within the tomb of our ancestry.' replied Alan. I will await you there. And as he rode away, Alan murmured to himself the following verse from one of his own ballads. But whether gale or calm prevail, or threatening cloud hath fled, by hand of fate predestinate, a limb that tree will shed. A verdant bough, untouched I trow, by axe or tempest's breath, to Rookwood's head, an omen dread of fast approaching death. End of chapter 2, book 5